The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Well, good morning. I hope you noticed the words you were just singing. I hope they weren't just rolling by as you were standing there enjoying the music, which was well done. Thank you, Rod and Chris. Revival starts with me. I picked those hymns, I think, four or five weeks ago. And as some of you know, I actually planned to be further on in Ephesians than we are today. But the way the Lord worked things out, what we want to talk about today and the, the passage that uh, Stephen read to us is our Bible reading and uh, several of those hymns just tie beautifully together in the discussion about the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. So take your Bibles, please, the book of Ephesians in chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse number 15 all the way down to verse number 21. Verse 15 of Ephesians 5, the Bible says this, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. With the Spirit, sorry. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's again ask for God's blessing, shall we? Loving Father, as we come before your word, with it open before us, Father, we ask you this morning that you would turn and look toward us. Father, we desire this because we want also to come with hearts that are humble and contrite and that tremble at your word. Father, the words that we were just singing, Holy Ghost, start a revival in me. And Father God, we cry out to you this morning that the Spirit of God would have freedom to work in this service, to take his word which he has inspired, and Father, to work it into our hearts to start a revival in each of us, that our love for you, our love for the Lord Jesus Christ may deepen and strengthen. Father, we would also have hearts that would tremble in reverent fear of the living God. Father, may it never, ever escape our attention as we sit in this room week by week coming to worship that we are gathered in the presence of the living God who is to be greatly feared. Father, give us a reverent awe as we stand before your word. And Father, we ask you for your help We plead with you, O God, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear what you would say to us. 
And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul has been writing his letter to the Ephesians, and he's been speaking to them about the new life in Christ, about being part of a new community in the Lord Jesus Christ. And having established a foundation in chapters 1 through 3 about how we are saved and what we are saved into as part of the church, he has spent these last two chapters, 4 and 5, unpacking for us the practical implications of that salvation. And he has given us this command in verse 15, be careful or take great care how you walk. And as we said last week, the idea of walking in Pauline literature is the idea of living, a progressive, ongoing, steady, repetitive living. So he's saying to us, be careful, take great care how you live, not as unwise men, but as wise men. We are to take care and walk carefully by taking full advantage of the time. And we can see that in verse number 16. Because the days are evil. We are also to take great care how to live and walk, not as foolish men, but as wise by understanding what the will of the Lord or the will of God is. And we saw that last week. We are also to take great care to walk as wise men by refusing to surrender ourselves to the influence of wine or intoxicating drinks, but rather to surrender ourselves to the filling of the Holy Spirit within us. And what I want to do this morning is I want to start with the text, unpack that verse, number 18, and then take a walk through the Bible and look at the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit all through Scripture so we get a good and a correct and a biblical understanding of what the work and the ministry of the Spirit of God is within the lives of a believer. So he says... In verse number 18, do not become drunk, drunk. And it's a present passive imperative verb, which means do not surrender yourself to the increased influence of wine or intoxicating substance. It's a present tense, which means in the English it's a continuous thing. So do not, not just once, but on an ongoing basis, do not surrender yourself to the influence of alcohol. Drunkenness was the best first century example of a complete contrast between the ungodly life of the unbeliever and the godly life of Jesus' followers. And in Galatians 5.21, drunkenness, Paul considers a deed or a work of the flesh, and it's to be contrasted with the life living by the Spirit under the power of the Holy Spirit. Drunkenness is and was a common escape that people use to get rid of the depressive issues of life. You can't pay your rent, you can't pay your bills, you got just enough money for a bottle of whiskey, so you drink your problems away, although as the, the recovering alcoholic once said, you drink and your problems are bad, and by the time you sober up, they've gotten that much worse, and so you try and keep drowning it, and no matter how big you drown your problems or how much alcohol to use, you drown your problems, the problems seem to run with the level of alcohol you're using. It's just a never-ending downward spiral. Drunkenness only intensifies the problem. Drunkenness can temporarily cheer the heart and mind, but it always ends in heartache and invariably a headache. And in contrast to living in the Spirit, which gives unceasing joy to those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Drunkenness, as we know, loosens the tongues with words and singing, but inevitably it divides and separates men rather than drawing them together, which life in the Spirit will do. The effects of drunkenness, they fade after several hours, but the exhilarating life 
lived in the power of the Spirit of God, continues without ceasing. Surrendering ourselves to that, to drunkenness, is foolish, senseless, and reckless. He says there, in the second part of that verse, in which is dissipation. You say, what does that mean? Well, drunkenness is dissipation, the idea of reckless, senseless, wasteful, and foolishness. And I love the way Paul takes these comparisons. Foolish behavior, wise behavior. Foolish behavior, wise behavior, all the way down the line. And here he carries on. He says, listen, drunkenness is wasteful, reckless, foolish behavior. You're wasting time and money. You're destroying your life. You're tearing apart your liver and all the rest of that that goes with it. It's just got no lasting value whatsoever. It makes fools of men so that they do not glorify God for which we were created. Does Paul say, never drink wine? No, that's not what he's saying. And the Bible does not ever say that you should never drink wine. It's, a, it's something that can be participated with control and with care. The Bible doesn't teach complete and total abstinence. If you choose to live your life in complete absence from alcohol, God bless you. That is your freedom to do that if you so choose. But it's not what the Scriptures teach, but what the Scripture does teach very powerfully and very clearly is that drunkenness is completely contrasted with the believer's life lived in surrender to the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on, he says, but, and he draws a contrast, be filled in the Spirit. And again, it's a present passive imperative verb, and it means to be filled or generously supplied with the Spirit. And also, just like drunkenness in that present tense, which is continuous, so this is also continuous. So what he's saying is, do not get drunk with wine, but be continuously filled with the Spirit. And Paul is speaking of not of being filled with or in a person, a spirit. He's not speaking about a substance like you can take wine and you fill yourself up with that liquid and it has its inebriating, intoxicating effect. He's speaking about being under the influence of a person. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in writing and speaking on this passage, said, It means to be filled with the influence of a living person. Being drunk with wine is an action that we initiate. We pick up the bottle, pour it into the glass, lift, tilt, and drink, and so on. But this different, it's different here because it's a person we're talking about, and because it is a present passive imperative verb, it means that we receive the action. A present active imperative means, if I say to Walter, stand up. That means that he's supposed to stand up. He's the one, he's receiving the command. I'm making it to him. He receives it, so he's told to stand up. But if I say to Walter, go out and get punched, he thinks to himself, well, how do I do that? Is, that, is he supposed to go outside and just start wailing away at himself? No, because the present passive command that Walter just stands there and waits for somebody to punch him. I'm sure one of his boys would be quick to volunteer to do the job and he would enjoy being punched or not. But it's a passive means that they receive the command. An active means that the subject does the work. So what Paul is saying here, he says, is do not be drunk with wine, but be receiving the continuous filling of the Holy Spirit. Be receiving the continual increase in the influence of the Holy Spirit. He is a person. He cannot be coerced or forced. He is a person, the Spirit of God, with a will. 
And Paul says, be filled and under the increasing influence of the Spirit of God. And there we go. That's our passage. We can close our Bibles and go home. Have a nice day. No, we're not going to do that. What does it look like is the big question. We can talk about being filled with the Spirit and under the influence of the Spirit. We can talk about praying in the Spirit. And oftentimes, I think, in Christianity, we learn to use certain catchphrases, certain religious-sounding phrases, and often we have no idea what they really look like or what they really mean. And the world we live in, in the Christian context we live in, there are so many groups who have different ideas about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, what it means to live and walk and teach and sing and so on under the influence of the Spirit of God, that I think it's important for us that we want to have a biblical, clear understanding of what it actually means. So, we need to know... In order to live this Christian life, to be pleasing to the Lord, to live enjoying the full benefits, the full privileges that Christ has purchased for us on the cross, we need to understand what it means to live filled with the Spirit. It is a biblical, joyful, right way to live. It's a God-honoring way to live when it is lived according to what the Scripture teaches. We need to hear this message so we can live as God intended us to live, as born-again followers of Christ, filled with His Holy Spirit. And sadly, some believers have allowed the excesses of certain groups of Christians to rob us of what is our God-given blessing. I said a few weeks ago... There are some groups that take the idea of living in the Spirit and they go off to one extreme in one direction and they do things that are blasphemous. They're so far from what God's character and nature is like. And sadly, the rest of Christianity has sort of looked over there and gone, ooh, don't like that idea. So they've swung the other way and they don't want to have anything to do with anything that sounds like that. And the problem is, like in most situations, the answer is not on this end or even on that end, the answer is back in the Bible, right in the middle. So I want us to see together what it means. So what is the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit from Scripture? Last week I gave you uh, Wayne Grudem's uh, definition of the will of God, and I want to give you his definition again of the work of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And he says this, The work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the absence of God in the world, and especially in the church. I read to you again. He says, The work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. And that presence of the Holy Spirit in us and with us is how we know God's abiding presence until He has finished His work in us. We're glorified and present with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I'm looking forward to that day when we come and stand face to face with God and the work of the Spirit of God applying salvation and sanctification to our lives is finished and done and we see Christ glorified. The work is finished and we see Him as He truly is. The presence of God. Paul described the Spirit of God as the pledge and the deposit of our inheritance in Ephesians 1.14. The presence of the Holy Spirit within us is a foretaste of what it will be like in heaven face to face with Christ Jesus. Now, God has been manifesting His presence in the world since it very began in creation. In fact, we read in Genesis 1 and 2. 
about how the Spirit of God was moving or brooding over the surface of the waters. His presence was there in creation. And God is still manifesting His presence in the world through believers. He manifests His presence all through the Old and New Testaments and into today. But is there a difference between how God manifested Himself in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Is there a difference from the first century to today? And the answer is yes. There are differences from first century to today. There are differences in the degree and the extent to which God manifests His presence in the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament... It was a less powerful, less extensive work in the Old Testament and a far greater manifestation in the New Testament. The turning point, of course, we can see is the central work of Christ on the cross, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death and his resurrection. And then as father and son together poured out the spirit on Pentecost morning, it all changed. It greatly increased. So I want us to look through Scripture and see how He manifested His presence and how it is that we can and we must, because it is a command of Scripture to be filled with the Spirit as believers. So first of all, the Old Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit manifested the active presence of God through chosen individuals, a few select ones. The Holy Spirit only came on a few people with power for a specific, I'll try it in English, specific ministry and service. Now some would say, lots of people would say, that the Spirit of God only rested on people in the Old Testament. But then from the New Testament on, He indwells and fills those who are included in the New Covenant. And that's about 99% true, which means it's about 1% not quite true. And the answer is this, there are a few mentions, only a handful of mentions of Old Testament saints being filled with the Spirit. For example, uh, Numbers 27 verse 18, the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. So we know that Joshua was filled with the Spirit. In Ezekiel 2 verse 2, the Bible says that that God spoke to him and the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me. Ezekiel was filled with the Spirit. Daniel 4 verses 8 and 9, the Bible says, Daniel's writing, Final Daniel came in before me whose name is Belteshazzar according to the name of my God and in whom is a Spirit of the Holy God. So even Nebuchadnezzar recognized there was a Spirit of God in Daniel. In Micah 3, verse 8, he says, I am filled with power with the Spirit of God. So that's only four. And you say there's a lot of people in the Old Testament and only four. You're right. That's a very, very small handful. But there were some that were filled with the Spirit. Now, some would argue that it's not a permanent filling. But... You could say that, but you're arguing from silence because there's only uh, two examples I can find in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God filled and then left. And that's in, and they're both cases of persistent sin. In Judges 16 verse 20, the Spirit left Samson due to his persistent sin in going out and sleeping with other women. And he was supposed to be judging the people of Israel. In 1 Samuel 16 and verse 14, the Spirit left King Saul due to his persistent sin and instead gave him an evil spirit from God to torment him. 
So God allowed an evil spirit to take over in Saul's life. And that effect was so powerful and so dramatic that later on in David's life, as he has committed sin against God in, in taking Bathsheba and all of that with Uriah, he cries out to God in prayer, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He saw the tremendous difference in Saul's life from when he was filled with the Spirit to when God pulled the Spirit away from Saul and allowed an evil spirit to turn him. And David said, Please, Lord, not that. It was a terrible, terrible thing. But then... In addition to some, a handful that had filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of God also rested, or just landed, if you like, on different ones. So in Numbers 11, 25 and 26, the Bible says, The Lord took of the Spirit who was upon Moses and placed him upon the 70 elders, and when the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. And then also there's other uh, instances, for example, uh, Joseph and Othniel the judge, Daniel the prophet, Gideon the judge, Jephthah the judge, David, Zechariah, and there's more, where the Spirit of God rested upon them, but it wasn't the same sense as filling them. It was a temporary time for a specific purpose and so on. But all through that... Okay, and you go back to David Moses, there are men of God who long for the day when the Spirit of God would come on all of God's people. In fact, Moses said to Joshua, would that the Spirit of God would fill or rest on all the people of Israel, not just a handful and not just some prophesying. They wanted all of them. He, he wanted the Spirit on all the people of God. Well, sadly, as the centuries passed and God's people, Israel, repeatedly broke the covenant, God began to reveal a coming new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32, the Bible says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. The Old Testament often describes and pictures God as a, this is terrible, a jilted lover. A husband who has been guilted or cheated on by his wife because of Israel's constantly turning away from God and going and pursuing after the idols and bales of the land. Well, that new covenant would include the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling all who participated in it. The Bible says in Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That same new covenant would involve the pouring out of the spirit on all flesh, men and women. You'll notice all those names I gave you are mostly men. Okay, I think I believe Deborah was also having the spirit on her. But majority was men. But he says in Joel chapter 2, listen, verses 28 and 29, It will come about after this, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. So although the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament 
was primarily kings and leaders and prophets, but not on all the people of God. The Old Testament also promised and looked forward toward its end days, towards a new covenant. That would be formed with the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit on all God's people, that until Christ returns and the work in us is finished and we're glorified. Then you get to a sort of a transition point. At the very end of the Old Covenant times, who came in power, not in power, but not glory, was the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? He came at the end of the Old Covenant age. He came in humility as the suffering servant of the Lord to die in order that we might be reconciled to God. And while the presence of God had been manifested by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, now there's something different. The presence of God was here with the twelve among the people of Israel in the person of Christ himself. He is the God-man, God come in the flesh, God filled with the Spirit. Jesus Christ is himself is actually described as filled with the Holy Spirit in Luke 4 and verse 1. And then in Luke 4 verse 13, he comes led in the power or led by the power of the Spirit of God. In fact, the Spirit of God so overwhelmed, if you like Jesus, that one of the Bible, one of the Gospels actually describes the work of the Spirit of God in taking Jesus out to be tempted as he drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted. The power of the Spirit of God was so so strong in the Lord Jesus' life. Jesus himself manifested God's presence in the world. The light shone into the darkness and the darkness could not overwhelm it. Thank the Lord. And Christ called the twelve disciples to walk and travel with him, learning from him, allowing him to teach and train and prepare them to take over his ministry when they also would be filled with the Spirit. The twelve knew and believed in Christ. Now you some go, whoa, hold on a second, how does that happen? It was an incomplete understanding and it was a weak faith. But the Bible does record several spots where the disciples believed in Christ. It said this in John 2 verse 11. This beginning of his sign, which when Jesus turned the water into wine, Jesus did in Cana and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. In John 6, his incredible words of Peter. Peter's a great guy. In all the Bible characters, people identify with different characters more and less than others. I love Peter because he was big, he was blundery, he was always putting his foot in his mouth, but occasionally he said something that was kind of profound. So I figure I'm two-thirds of the way there. I'm big, I'm blundery, I always put my foot in my mouth, and I hope one day to say something profound. But Peter said some great things. I don't think Peter fully understood everything that he was saying, but listen to what he said. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. Yes. (laughs) And even though later in his life, you know what happened? He turned away and he denied the Lord three times. He said, may God strike me dead if I know him. That's the force of his words when he called down curses and oaths. And for a time he did, but he came back to the Lord. He was restored to the Lord, and that restoration process proves that there was genuine faith in Peter. Okay? But this is all happening prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. But don't forget, 
They have Christ with them who is manifesting the presence of God in the world in human form as well as they have Christ filled with the Spirit of God. Listen to what Jesus said. He promised them that he would send the Spirit. In John 14, verses 16 to 17, he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it did not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and we will be in you. Don't miss the verb tenses. He abides, present tense, he will be in you. Future tense. What's Jesus saying? He's saying the presence of the Spirit of God is there indwelling Christ and they can recognize it because they see it in Him. And He will be with them in a day to come after Pentecost. So He was telling them about the Spirit of God who was both there and would be in them. In Luke 24, 49, He says this, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then in Acts 1.8, he picks up the line again. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. So the disciples in that last little bit of the old covenant age, as the new covenant age is beginning to come in, they knew the Lord and some believed in him prior to the spirit being poured out. They were weak in faith. It was an incomplete understanding for sure. But they had believed. I think the way a simple little child just hears the gospel and she can't define or, or understand or articulate the five points of Calvinism, but they simply know that Jesus died for me and I believe in him and I'm saved. It was as simple as that for them. They didn't understand fully all of it, but they were getting there. Then at Pentecost, that great morning, 12 men Plus the other followers are with them, were baptized and filled with the Spirit. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves and resting on each one, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The new covenant promise made through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others in the Old Testament was fulfilled. The Spirit of God was poured out in power on all those who believed. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Listen, they were baptized in the Spirit once. One well, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say they were baptized twice or multiple times. They were baptized once. But the book of Acts then mentions subsequent fillings or subsequent increased influence in the Holy, of the Holy Spirit in their lives. For example, Acts 4 verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, and he began to preach the gospel to them. A beautiful sermon. Acts 4 verse 31. After that same time, the churches all together, and when they had prayed, Acts 4.31, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. In Acts 13, verse 9, Saul, who was also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, fixing his gaze on Demas, and he works a miracle. 
And Demas goes around looking for someone to hold his hand because Paul has spoken. He's become, become blind. Okay, the Spirit of God was working. He filled them. So the disciples, during that time of transition from the old covenant age ending and the new covenant age being fully realized, they believed a significant time period passed before the Spirit of God actually indwelt them. But they also had the presence of Christ with them for all but the ten days between His ascension and Pentecost. Now, here's where a whole lot of Christianity goes a little bit astray. Okay, A lot of Christian believers will say, just like the disciples, they believed, they had some sort of faith, they had Christ within the Spirit, but later they received a sudden overwhelming filling, and then they were doing all kinds of speaking in tongues and miracles and all that. And Christians today will say that there is something called two baptisms of the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible makes it absolutely clear there is one baptism of the Holy Spirit, but there are subsequent fillings. Now, we're going to say, you say, Nelson, you're just playing with words. Aren't they the same thing? No, they're not. Okay, I was going to save the illustration at the end. I might even repeat at the end if I do, just because my mind's failing. But think of it this way. Spirit of God makes a man alive in Christ. And in a sense, he takes and he lights a fire inside somebody. And that fire begins to burn. And the fire burns, and there's, a, there's heat, and there's light, and there's warmth. There's interesting analogies in Scripture between fire and the Spirit of God. But that fire burns within that person, just like Moses' burning bush. The fire burns, but the bush is not consumed. But there is heat, and there's light. And I was looking for a way to try and understand how this works. And I was having a barbecue with some friends, uh, a fire with some friends at our house. And we're trying to get the fire going, and it wasn't going. And my friend Roddy, y'all know Roddy comes and preaches here once in a while. He says, i got a way to get this thing going. Good old Aussie trick. Thinking, oh, great. What is it going to be, petrol or something? You know. He says, no, no, watch. And he goes and gets a, a, a hair dryer. And he comes down, and he opens the bottom of the thing. He takes a hair dryer on you know, And the fire it comes up hot and high. Right? And we're all, whoa, Rod, take it easy, man. And there's ashes and bits of stuff going everywhere. The fire hasn't changed. The wood has not changed. The fire is the same fire that was burning in a smoldering like when I was trying to get it going as to when he was getting it going. But the sudden increase of that air rushing into the bottom of fire, it massively increased the influence of that fire to where the light shone super bright and the heat coming off that fire was really overwhelming. The fire unchanged. He hadn't lit a new fire. He had just increased the influence of the one that's there. And that's the best way I know how to describe the difference between a baptism is like lighting a fire and the filling of the Spirit is like the increase of that fire is suddenly brighter and hotter and the light is so much brighter and everybody can see by it. All right? So there's one baptism, but there are subsequent fillings of the Holy Spirit. The disciple situation which a lot of people place a lot of emphasis and build their theology on that, was a rare and unique situation. As the old covenant age was ending, Christ was there manifesting the presence of God in person, and the new covenant age was beginning, and Christ had gone back to heaven. He said, I think I might have mentioned already, He said, it's to your benefit that I go back. 
Because if I go back, then I will send, and we know from Acts, that both the Father and the Son together pour out and send the Spirit of God to indwell and empower the lives of the believers who would then take Jesus' message and go out and make disciples of all nations. Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's what he was filling, fulfilling in their lives at the end. So... One baptism for all in the Spirit for all believers, but there are subsequent fillings of the Spirit. Then, of course, we come, number three in your note there, your note sheet. Uh, there is the work of the Spirit in the covenant age, the new covenant age. So how does the Spirit of God work in our new covenant age? We're part of that new covenant. One of the key works of the Holy Spirit is to apply the salvation that Christ purchased with His blood. He applies it to us. There's a number of ways that He's working. He was working in your life before you even came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You say, how does that work? How did you get to hear the gospel the first time? You say, well, I just heard it. Did you? You just happened upon a tract. Oh, yeah, I just found a tract. So someone didn't put the tract there for you to find. Oh, I just found it. So you were brought by a friend to a gospel service and you heard the gospel preached. How is it that that friend called you, invited you, and brought you? Because the Spirit of God was at work in you, working through other believers who were handing out gospel tracts or sharing a gospel message with you over a cup of coffee or working like a missionary in a far-off land, sharing the gospel everywhere they go. That's the Spirit of God's work in you to draw you, to bring you in close, to hear the message. That's the setting apart. He's, if you like, the big shepherd's crook is reaching out and hooking onto you and drawing you in closer so that you can hear that message. His second work is to reveal Christ to us. In Acts 16 and verse 14, the first uh, convert, if I remember correctly, in Europe was a lady named Lydia, a seller of purple. I think I got the name right. And it says, the Bible says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to things spoken by Paul. The Spirit of God was at work in her to open her heart, open her mind, her understanding. So she understood the gospel. It was revealed to her. The Spirit of God works in us so that we hear the gospel and understand it. We can all remember, right, as Christians, you might have heard the gospel growing up as a kid. Didn't make much sense to you. I did. I heard it. I can remember my dad showing me nail print of his hands and putting his finger in his palm. I'll never forget it. I was in Barrick and I was about five years of age hearing this story. Didn't make sense. I couldn't figure it out for anything. But I remember the day sitting in a little kid's camp hearing the gospel and going, got it. I, I know what that means now. I understand it. That's because the Spirit of God opened my heart and my mind to understand what he was saying. The Father and the Son, sorry, the Father and the Spirit work together to regenerate us and make us alive in Christ. In 1 Peter 3.18, the Bible says we are made alive in the Spirit. It's part of the Spirit's work to regenerate and make you alive in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse or 2 verse 4 talks about how the Father made us alive according to His great mercy and His love with which He loved us. The moment that we believe the Bible says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that we are sealed in Him, in the Spirit, 
of promise. Now, you might wonder what that means. It doesn't mean like a fridge door. You slam a door and it seals shut. Uh, has anybody here got a professional seal? Like if you're an engineer or something, do you have a professional seal? No, don't do it anymore? No, the good old days are gone, okay? <laughs> it used to be that if you were an engineer or um, an architect, you had a professional seal. You say, what's that? It's like this big metal thing with a big round uh, die cut, and they'll take special documents, and the, and the engineer would sign the document with his big flowery signature, and then he would take it, and he'd put the paper inside the seal thing, and he would push it down, and that seal would impress an image right into the paper, actually crush the paper into it, so when you pulled the seal thing open again, you could see that image actually indented right into the paper. In the old days, a guy would take his, the king would take his signet ring and have a special seal in there, put wax on a document, take his ring, and he'd push his ring into it, and it would make the impression of his coat of arms or his personal signature, uh, personal emblem, if you like, would then be impressed into the wax. That's what he's talking about in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He impresses his image, his person on us so deeply that we are profoundly changed and everybody looking at us can say, aha, he's a Christian. How do you know? Well, the Spirit of God is on him so powerfully, it's so changed him that we can see right away, that's a Christian. You know, when you go places and you meet someone and you start talking to them and you go, oh, hang on, there's something different here. I was in a doctor's office not long ago and I was talking to this guy and he's, we're talking away and he says, oh, what do you do for a living? And I said, oh, I'm a pastor and so on. And all of a sudden he just sort of, his face brightened and he sort of turned towards me more away and we started chatting and I'm like, ah, he's a Christian. His immediate reaction was there was, there was a connection there. He say, oh, it's just body language. No. Because before he even said that, I could tell there was something different. And in my heart, the Spirit of God in me was testifying, that guy's a believer. And I'm sure that in his heart, the Spirit of God was saying, hey, the guy sitting in your doctor's chair is a believer. That's the Spirit of God ingrained and impressed in the believer. That presence of the Spirit of God can't be taken out. Imagine like the, the seal somehow trying to remove that impression or the wax that's hardened, removing your impression. It can't work. So we are sealed, we are branded or impressed with the Spirit of God the moment we believe. The Spirit of God engraves His presence in us and we're radically changed on the inside the moment we believe and His presence seals us as belonging to Him. At the same moment, the moment of belief, we are baptized in one spirit into the body. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this, 12 and verse 13, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. My NASB has for by one spirit. It's not actually, it's not the best translation. It should be for in one spirit. And people, again, of a charismatic understanding would take that verse and say we're baptized in the Spirit one time and baptized by the Spirit a different time. Not true, because the word is hen. It's the same in in Greek in both references. And the Bible, should it should read, we are baptized in one spirit. It's the same moment, all believers, the moment you trust in Christ, you are immersed into one body, the body of the church. 
So there's a fire lit inside of us like Moses' burning bush. It's a fire that does not consume us, but radically changes us. We've been baptized and immersed in the Spirit. And the Spirit of God's indwelling immediately begins to work in us to make us like Jesus Christ. Because you've got to remember something. One of the problems with ministries and churches and understandings that puts a huge emphasis on the Spirit of God is they somewhat misunderstand the purpose of the Spirit of God. His purpose is always to point to Christ. His goal is always to glorify and highlight Christ to the believer. His ministry is to make us like Christ. And how does he make us like Christ? By grabbing onto our heads and turning them so we look and see Christ. We see Him in the Scriptures. We see Him as we hear the Word of God preached and so on. So there's five ways I want to sketch out quickly for you that the Spirit of God works within us to make us like Christ and work to make each other like Christ through us. Number one, the Spirit empowers us for ministry. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. The Spirit of God gives gifts for ministry. Secondly, but notice in 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to read this in a sec, verses 7 to 11, the phrase, the common good. One of the sad things is when people desire specific gifts because they'll think it'll make them somebody in front of everybody else. That's happened over and over and over again. I'll just be brutally honest, okay? Not that I'm dishonest the rest of the time, but... Be very transparent, put it that way. One of the greatest dangers I face standing before a pulpit in front of all of you people every week is it can go straight to here. And I can start thinking, wow, I've got something special. That's a terrible, terrible danger. And God does things. I've read lives of many preachers throughout history that God greatly used. Invariably, I can pretty much say invariably those men suffered greatly, the men that were greatly used. Spurgeon had gout through 90% of his body. There were times when he would scream in pain from the gout. That just They, didn't have, they, didn't, they couldn't do anything about it. Uh, he went to Mentone, uh, Wes was telling me the other day, uh, Mentone often because he would lie in the hot sun in France and it would help res- ease the pain of the gout. Calvin had uh, unbelievable... Kidney stones, one after another, after another, after another. Some of these men would bury their children. One child every two years was Calvin's history. They went through great and terrible suffering. Paul the Apostle, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Why? To keep him humble, to keep him depending entirely upon the grace of God. And the great danger, brothers and sisters, as we go looking to be for those gifts, because they are there and they are for the ministry of the body, they're to be used by each of us as God God the Spirit gives them to us to minister to one another, to build each other up in Christ, the great danger is we start thinking we're somebody because we got some special gift or another. That is not the case. We're like that glove. I used an illustration a couple weeks ago. A useless piece of leather that just flops around. No strength, no power, no ability, nothing. It just lies on the ground until you pick it up. But as soon as you pick that glove up and you put a hand inside of it and that glove can reach out and do work and do all kinds of things, nobody says, wow, look at what that glove can do. No, they say, look at what the carpenter or the stonemason is doing with his hand inside of a glove. 
That's exactly how we are to be, and these gifts are for that purpose. But he does give us, he empowers us for ministry and gives us gift for the common good. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 to 11. But to each one of us is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. These are the gifts for ministry. The word of wisdom through the Spirit, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, faith by the same Spirit, gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation. But the one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each individually just as He wills. Not we will. He wills. He's the one sovereignly in control. So that first of all, the Spirit empowers us for our ministry. So the gift that God gives you, whether it's encouragement, whether it's speaking, whether whatever it might be, you use that gift not to build a name for yourself. You use that gift to minister and come alongside and share the Word of God and encourage another say and build them up. It's like tools working together to build a great building. They're just being used by God as sharpened tools to be building the church up. So he empowers for ministry. Number two, he purifies. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, we're washed, sanctified, justified in the Spirit. His name or his title is the Holy Spirit. So one of his main works and ministries in the church amongst believers is to make us holy, to make us like Christ, to wash us and cleanse us, to get rid of the habits, the thinking, the ideology that separates us and tears us apart as a church. He's working to wash us and make us holy, to purify us. How are we being transformed? But we all, 2 Corinthians 3.18, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. The Spirit of God whose word we have. We look into it. We read. And the Spirit of God takes His words, impress them on our heart, and His His presence inside of us helps us understand them. He's showing us Christ in His word. That's his goal, is to always put Christ up, that we would see the glory of Christ. But it's his work of transforming us as we behold Christ. That purifying effect produces fruit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those are not fruits. They're fruit one. Meaning what? Meaning the Spirit of God produces that produce, that fruit in us, and it might be love at a different level and joy at a different amount and peace at a different amount. They're not all the same and they're not all, they're not separated. They're all together. You say, how does that actually look like? What's it work like? What's it look like is this. There are moments in our days when I don't feel very loving. In fact, I feel very much more like punching somebody instead of loving them. Don't worry, it doesn't happen when I'm around here. No, I'm, I'm kidding. There are times. It's true. We're all in the, we still have that flesh side of us. And there are times when we don't feel very loving toward one another. And the Spirit of God in those moments brings out love in each of us that's an unnatural response to the circumstances that we're in. And I had moments when, you know, if it had been left up to me, 
Praise the Lord, he didn't leave it up to me. I would have just popped my cork and said something that I really shouldn't have said and would have spent a long time regretting. And instead, in that moment, to my utter amazement, what came out of my mouth were words that were gentle and kind and loving. That's the Spirit of God at work in us. That's when he produces the opposite of what would naturally come out of our mouths. Our natural response is love instead of anger or bitterness and so on. The Spirit of God produces fruit in us. The Spirit of God thirdly reveals the truth to us. The Spirit has opened our eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Now he opens our eyes to see more. How many of you opened your Bible this week and read through a passage and all of a sudden a verse just popped off the page at you and you were like, whoa, I never noticed that before. Look how cool this is. And you start looking into it and you start getting the commentary trying to figure out, understand it. Why is that? Because you read that and the Spirit of God begins to take the truth that's contained on those pages in those lines and impress them into your heart and begin to teach you. And all of a sudden you start making connections across Scripture. Hey, that works this way. Hey, did you notice this over here? Oh, look at this. And all of a sudden there's this, this whoa. How's it work? Because all of a sudden you got smarter. It, well, it might work in you that way, but I'll tell you, it doesn't work in me that way. I didn't get smarter at all. It's the Spirit of God is teaching me His Word, instructing me in it. John sixteen thirteen. The Spirit of truth will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever hears, He hears, He will speak again. He is working in submission to His Father and the Spirit and uh, the Son. Sorry, and He speaks as they give it to Him. In our lives, the Spirit makes Himself known in different ways. People ask me, "How can I truly know that I'm born again?" Listen, this is what the Bible says. The Spirit Himself, Romans 8.16, testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit of God will give you that confidence, that assurance in your own heart. How, How do I get it? Well, here's one thought. Ask Him. Lord, give me that assurance of the Spirit of God in my heart that I truly know You. He says He will do it. Galatians 4.16, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The response of our hearts is no longer in fear of a God who will judge us and send us to hell for our sin. Now our response is, Abba, Father, my Father. There's a love relationship. That fear of God is still there, but the love is now flowing between us. And we see Him no longer as an angry God but as a loving, holy, and righteous Father. The Holy Spirit fourthly unifies as a body the church for ministry. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. How is it? That we as a body of Christ, 28 or something like nationalities in this room. Different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different everything. And the wonderful thing about a church, a gospel community, is when the Spirit of God is at work here, there is a unity and a fellowship and a friendship in Christ, in the Spirit, that you cannot get anywhere else. Look at the clubs out there. Motorcycle club, 
aviation club, archery club, knitting club, book club. They're all based in something that they gather around. We're a Christian club, meaning what? We gather around Christ, right? And the Spirit of God takes us and He brings us from all those different parts of the world and all those different cultures and He brings us all together and says, listen, you got one thing in common. It's Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, the moment we start taking our fellowship and putting our fellowship around other things, we actually chip away at the gospel. We say we need something other than the gospel to fellowship around. It ought to be in its purest sense, when we are all together in this room, long before I start preaching, we're all together and one is leading in prayer and we're all listening and our hearts are all flowing up to God in prayer and as Con closed one of his prayers and we all said, Amen. We're saying, we agree with him. We're with him. Father, we want what he just prayed for. That's the unifying effect of the Holy Spirit that draws us together and puts aside those things that make us different and focuses on the one thing that makes us the same, which is Christ Himself. That's what it should be. That's what a church is designed to be. That's why the Spirit of God has to be at work amongst us or we will not have that. By the way, one of the strongest commands given to the church in dealing with people that are a problem in the church is to the one who is divisive. In Titus 3, verse 10, it says, Reject a factious or a divisive person after one or two warnings. In other words, somebody who comes in with a specific intention of tearing apart and ruining that fellowship and causing division and doing all kinds of gossiping or whatever that tears apart that unity and fellowship, he is to be out of the church. Discipline process in Matthew 18 is put aside. He is out. He is warned twice by the elders and put out. So that sounds awfully harsh. That's how much God values the unity and the fellowship of the saints in the Spirit of God. Fifthly, the Holy Spirit gives stronger or weaker evidence of the presence and blessing of God according to our response to Him. I shortened that for your, your notes just to fit it all in. The Spirit of God gives stronger or weaker evidence of the presence and blessing of God according to our response to Him. In the New Testament, the Spirit can be grieved. It says a couple times, Ephesians 4, verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 and 20, Do not quench the Spirit. In other words, brothers and sisters, there is actions and activities that we can engage in that can hinder and quench and grieve the Spirit of God in us so that He can no longer minister freely. And all of a sudden, that influence seems to ebb down a little bit. In a way, it's like taking a big black blanket and wrapping it around that fire and quenching the Spirit. You say, what does that do? Is the fire still there? Yes. Is it still burning? Yes. Is the heat still there? Yeah, it's sort of contained now. Is the light still there? Yeah, but all of a sudden it's dimmed. You get the point? So sinful activity in our lives can quench and hinder and grieve the work of the Spirit of God in us. Which brings us, at long last, however long we've been here, back to Ephesians 5.18, where Paul says, 
Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, we made the point way back when that that filling is a passive thing. So the Spirit of God must fill us. The Spirit of God takes the work of initiative, takes the initiative, sorry, to increase His influence in us. So you say, well, why would Paul give us a command that says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled? This is like me telling Walter to go out and get punched. Why would, how can he respond to that command? It goes back to what I just said a minute ago. Because our sanctification process is a cooperative effort. We must strive for holiness according to the power of God that works in us. So in order to be filled with the Spirit of God, I can't do that filling. But what I can do is make sure that I am a fit vessel to be filled up. Right? It's like, uh, I don't have a, never mind. I that mug down on my seat there. I was drinking tea before because I got a sore throat. That mug has a big crack in it halfway down. And I go to pour water in that, and it doesn't work. The water just splashes out and gets all over the countertop, and the ladies get angry at me. So it doesn't work. But what i got to do is take some wax or some clay and pack it into where that crack is and seal up the crack so that the water can then be held in the cup. Okay. So when he says, be filled with the Spirit, what he's saying is, we have to do the necessary work so that the Spirit of God can then fill us and we are a fit vessel. Don't quench the Spirit. So what we do is we look at those activities and those attitudes and that mindset and the thinking and all the act, those things that will quench and hinder His work in us and we work to get rid of them so that we are now a vessel that can be filled with the Spirit of God, that His influence can all of us be sudden be so much brighter and hotter inside of us. There's something else here too. I've heard so many speakers talk about this, and they emphasize just what I said, and they stop there. But to me, that's only half of it. The Spirit of God is a living person. We would agree, yes? He's a, he is the third person of the Trinity. So... Do we pray? Yes. Is it right to pray to the Spirit of God? I'm going to answer yes. I know people would say, oh, no, hold on a second. We should only pray to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit. And I go, yeah, that's right. You should do that for sure. But the Spirit of God is a person. So I would say one of the reasons, one of the ways that we are filled with the Spirit of God is a very simple thing. We ask Him for it. We pray at 9.30 in the morning in that little room back there. And one of the things I love about a couple of the men and women that pray in there with me is they often ask that the Spirit of God would fill Pastor Nelson so as he preaches, he preaches what God wants him to say. One of the things I pray, I wake up. Not a joke. I, in Saturday night from sun to Sunday morning, I'll wake up probably ten times in the middle of the night. And almost always as I wake up, I start praying, Lord, fill me with your Spirit tomorrow morning so that I can preach your Word and say the things that you want to be said. And I ask him for it. But it's kind of like me asking for a cup that's cracked and saying to Wynn, give me a full cup of water, Wynn, and this cup's cracked. She'll go, well, no, the cup's cracked, you dummy. It, it won't, the water won't hold. It'll flow out. 
So me asking for the Spirit of God to fill me, or you, us, or all of us as a church, asking for the filling of the Spirit of God, the increased influence of the Spirit of God in our lives, while we are tolerating sin, is like asking for a cracked cup to be filled with water. It's just not going to happen. He's saying we lose the Spirit of God. No, I do not say that, and I will not say that. What I'm saying is, his influence is greatly diminished. But when we take time to get rid of those sinful activities and those sinful habits, and we start putting in place the godly habits, we start doing what Paul said about being careful how we walk, not as wise, unwise, but wise. We start making the most of our time. We start living in love. We start striving to be obedient to what Scripture calls us to do. At the same time, we're crying out to God, greatly increase the Spirit of God's influence in my life that I might have more power to live for you, that I might understand the Scriptures better, that when I preach, if that's your calling, that God might use me more effectively. But bear this in mind at the same time. I'm going to add this in too. You cry out to God. You begin to do that. You know what you do? You light a candle on a very dark night and you hold it up in the air. And God will use that light to shine and He will affect all those around you. A very bright candlelight on a very dark night gets somebody else's attention too. You will gain the attention of the enemy of your soul. And He'll look and He'll say, wait a minute. That person, the Spirit of God is in them. He's striving to be like Christ. I have to do everything I can to discourage and stop him. Be aware of that. Interesting, by the way, is that Paul talks about spiritual warfare in just one and a half chapters. (laughs) He knew what was going to come. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is how we live the Christian life. The Christian life is not to be lived in our own strength. Because if we could live it in our own strength, why would we need the Spirit of God in us? If we could live our own strength, why did Christ have to come and die and pay a penalty for our sin on a cross? But the very reality is that He came and suffered and died on a cross to cleanse us from sin. He filled us with His Holy Spirit that we would have the power of the living God in us to live this life in victory and success serving the Lord. Not without problems, not without struggles, not without great hardship. They come together. But the wonderful thing is the Spirit of God is also the Spirit of comfort too. (laughs) Isn't that great? He gives us what we need. But He also comes alongside and He puts His arm around and says, Hey, listen, I know it's going hard. I know the enemy of your soul is firing every arrow and dart at you to stop you doing what you're doing. I'm with you. I will not leave you. I'm going to walk this life with you. Just keep going. Keep trusting in Him. Keep putting off sin. Keep putting on Christ. And the Spirit of God's influence will increase in your life. And you'll know power for ministry. You'll know power to live this life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a great hope. He who began a work in you is going to finish it. How is He doing it? By the Spirit of God. Who keeps pointing to Christ and saying, Look at Him. Don't be drunk with wine. Don't waste your life in foolishness. That's effectively what He's saying. I'm going to be 50. I know that for some of you it's no big deal. For me it's a big deal. In a year and a bit. Who laughed? (laughs) 
And all of a sudden, I'm looking, I was walking around the other day, and I, and I got, I've been sick all week, and I've been a bit frustrated, cooped up in my little house with all my books and my Bibles, just enjoying that time. But I like to get out and do things too, right? And I was saying to Heather, I said, I just, I'm just frustrated. I want, I got so many things I want to do. I, I want to do this, I want to do that, and everything. And I don't want to get to the end of my life and leave a whole pile of things left undone. Why am I saying all this? Because there is one life to live. And only what's done for Christ is what will survive the fire. The day to come, your life will be put over a fire and it'll be burned. Not you personally, but all the activities of your life. And the wood, the fire, the hay, the straw, the stubble. I could attach a whole bunch of activities to that. But I don't want to offend anybody. I'm going to make the point without doing that. How much of your life at the end of those times when it's all burned up and all of the activities of your life are going up in smoke and only what's done for Christ is left and a little bit of gold and silver and precious stones is slowly seeping its way down as the fire burns hot and only what's gold and silver is left at the very bottom. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know about you, but I don't want to get there and see the fire burn for a long time with a whole little tiny pile of gold, silver and precious stones left. And the way that our lives can count for God's glory is when we live them in the power of the Holy Spirit, under the influence of His Spirit, in His Word, seeing what He would have us to do. That's why He puts understanding the will of God and being filled in the same sentence. No mistake. What He's saying is when you understand the will of God and you're filled with the Spirit, the connection is that you will do the will of God. And God will work in you. And God will use you greatly. Does that mean you're going to be a, a, a Billy Graham? No. It might mean that you go off to some place in the far corner of the world and preach your, the gospel with all your heart for 20 years and see one person saved. But when God is in it, it will be great. Brothers and sisters, we have a wonderful Savior, do we not? Let's strive with all of our hearts to walk in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, striving not to quench Him, but to live in the Spirit. He's going to mention praying in the Spirit and other things yet to come in the same book. Let's live our lives for His glory. Let's live our lives not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Spirit of God that fills us as a great blessing from God. There's so much more I'd like to say, but I'm just going to leave it there. Why don't we uh, stand? I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll sing the benediction. Loving Father, as we come again before you, and Father, every time I open this book and I see the greatness of your work, the greatness of your person, the majesty of who you are, I realize again, a little bit more, the richness of the grace that you have showered and flooded us with. Father, when we stop and think and realize that you were compelled by nobody and no thing to reach out in grace toward us, 
to work through the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue us and redeem us. And Father, even beyond that, you not only forgave us, you filled us with your spirit that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. It is grace, O God. Not of ourselves. Father, I love the way Paul put it. It's by the grace of God, lest any man should boast. Father, we have no boast. We come here this morning and we stand before you. And our one boast, our one cry is, we have Christ. Father, we realize in this moment that there is one answer to why we should be allowed into heaven. Jesus Christ. He died for us. And Father, even to think about his words when he said, it's better I go back to heaven because if I go back, I will pour out the gift of my Father, the Spirit of God. And Father, even though we can't even imagine this in its full meaning, we have something even better than the physical presence of Christ. That was his words, Father. But at the same time, Lord, we are longing, we are craving for that day when we will no longer require the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God because we will be face to face with Jesus Christ in your very presence, seeing him glorified and magnified and exalted. And Father, he will reach out to us and extend arms and hands of grace and we'll see the scars of the nail prints in his wrists. And Father, we'll know our Savior Father, thank you. We love you, Father. We love the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has accomplished for us. Father, thank you for our time in the word. Father, may this time each Sunday morning never become a box we tick to fulfill a religious duty each week, but may it be a time when we come together. And Father, to meet with you, to hear you speak to us through your word, Father, we might be built up and encouraged. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, this morning, that if there is one person in this room, or two, or three, or ten, O God, that have never trusted in you for salvation, Father, may they hear, may they see the verses, may they go back in time by themselves to open and read again the Scriptures. And Father, may you save them, make them alive by the power of the Spirit of God, that they would know what it means to be forgiven and set free and filled with the Spirit of God to live this life. Father, thank you for the filling of the Spirit of God that you gave to us. Father, thank you that you impressed and engraved your image on us in Him. And Father, we ask you that you would greatly increase His influence in our lives. Father, we look with heavy hearts of what some of our brothers and sisters are doing and claiming to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would bring the Word of God amongst their midst, that the Spirit of God, the real Holy Spirit, would take that Word and show them where they have where they've gone astray and done things they ought not. Father, we long to see a church, not just at Noble Park, but around the world, a church that is biblical, 
a church that is seeking to follow you and love you and to serve you in a powerful way, in a biblical way. Father, we ask you all these things. We give you thanks again for our time this morning. Father, for the Wetzels as they're heading up to Queensland this week, Lord, to spend some more time up there and eventually, Father, to go back to PNG. Father, we ask you for your great help and your great strengthening for them. Father, they have a journey to walk, a life to live, Father, that's a long way from here. And Father, the struggles and trials that we don't even understand, but you do. Father, we pray that you would meet their needs and minister to them to them in the power of the Holy Spirit as they have the Word of God open before them. Father, bind them tightly together in their marriage and in their family. Protect and preserve them. We cry out to you for this, O oh God. Father, for other missionaries that we know of, the IEM missionaries, thousands of them over in India, working to serve the Lord there. Father, for the Piats working in Indonesia. And Father, there's so many others. Father, we ask you that you'd encourage them and strengthen them in, the, in far-off fields, spending their lives to spread the gospel where it's not been heard before. Father, we ask your blessing for them. Lord, too, for the funeral service this afternoon, we ask you, O oh God, just special grace and special strengthening for Brian and Christine and the family as they go through the, the closure part of this. Father, a memorial service. Father, we ask you that you'd encourage them and strengthen them. Bless them, O oh God. Give them a joy as they consider and remember her life lived for you. Father, we ask you all these things this morning and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.